Hello and welcome to Coco Pods podcast. This is a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm a women's health specialist. And today we're fortunate to have with us uh, discussing dating violence in adolescence, the implications for girls' sexual health. We have Dr. Meredith C. Jones, a clinical psychologist. Good morning, Dr. Jones, and welcome to CocoaPods podcast. Good morning, Dr. Sagade. Thank you for having me. So, um, Dr. Jones, can you, you did publish a paper in the Pediatric Adolescent Gynecology Journal that was published in February 2020. And we're going to base our discussion on this paper. But before we talk about the paper, could you please tell us about your journey into becoming a clinical psychologist? Sure. So um, when I was an undergraduate in college, I originally studied anthropology, and I thought it was super interesting to learn about how individuals develop and grow within a cultural perspective. And then I took a class in psychology that was about close relationships in adolescence. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. People actually do research on like dating and romantic relationships and sexual behavior in adolescence. I didn't know that that was something you could do research on. And I ended up doing a double major in psychology and anthropology. And I really fell in love with research and using science to help us understand individuals. So then I decided to get a little bit more research experience, and I worked at Temple University in Philadelphia um, for two years, running as the coordinator of their infant lab, running a lot of research studies on child development. But I felt like my heart really was in adolescence and understanding adolescent relationships. And I also wanted to be able to use science to help people in real life. So I wanted to get that clinical training as well. So I ended up going to graduate school with one of the professors whose work I had read in that undergraduate class years before, Dr. Wendell Furman at the University of Denver, who studied romantic relationships in adolescence. So at the University of Denver, I trained to be a child clinical psychologist. So I got that research training and that clinical training. And then I ended up going to do my clinical internship, which is basically like residency for clinical psychologists, except we do it as our last year of graduate school instead of after we graduate. So I ended up at Brown University in Rhode Island doing my clinical internship and my postdoctoral fellowship there. And I ended up kind of re-specializing or focusing my specialty in pediatric HIV prevention and clinical care. So I was really fortunate to provide clinical care for three years to children and teens and families who are living with HIV. And I also got a lot of research training in adolescent dating violence prevention, sexual risk prevention, and HIV prevention as well. So I was able to get a lot of training in doing randomized clinical trials, looking at preventing difficulties in relationships, particularly for historically underserved adolescents. Um, so that's what I ended up being really passionate about. And so I wanted to continue doing that science and some clinical work as well, or doing that applied research. So when I got my faculty position at Rowan eight years ago now, that's what I did when I set up my lab there. And so my research at the moment focuses on um, young mothers, actually. So sexual risk and dating violence prevention for young mothers. But I also have several other research studies that we work on in my lab 
with my lab co-director, Dr. DJ Angeloni, and my PhD students and undergraduates. And we broadly look at preventing sexual violence, dating violence, and sexual risk in adolescence and young adulthood. Well, thank you. What a magnificent introduction. And thank you so very much for what you do, because this is so important. And I'm glad that I, you know, I met you. I, I read your work. I've seen your work. Thank you so much. And so we're going to discuss a lot about your publication in the Pediatric Adolescent Gynecology sure. Journal. And I want to start with a scenario in which we have a 16-year-old patient or girl who reports she recently hit her boyfriend in the head during a fight, resulting in a concussion and scalp laceration requiring stitches. According to you, the author of this review article, use of which of the following substances is most strongly associated with this behavior in girls? Is it marijuana? Is it alcohol? Is it steroids or narcotics? Great question. So we know that substance use is a risk factor for dating violence, perpetration, and victimization. So I would say it doesn't necessarily have to involve substance use, but if I had to choose one of those, I would probably say alcohol, just because that's going to be more commonly used by adolescents and adolescent girls in particular, in comparison with steroids or narcotics. And obviously alcohol results in impaired judgment and difficulties with emotion regulation. And we know that's a big risk factor for severe dating violence, uh, physical dating violence perpetration for adolescents of all genders. So I would pick that one if I had to pick one, but it really could be any and all of the above or no substance at all. You know, in adolescents in the United States are too often involved in relationships characterized by coercion and violence. An imagined body of research suggests that dating violence is linked with other health risks in adolescent relationships, particularly sexual risk behavior. The confluence of risks conferred by dating violence and sexual risk behavior are particularly acute for adolescent girls. So me, myself as an adolescent gynecology provider, I need to understand the nature of dating violence in adolescents and the ways in which dating violence and sexual risk behavior are mutually influential. So Dr. Jones, how do you define the term dating violence? So there are lots of different terms that folks use, particularly if you read the scientific literature, including adolescent dating violence, adolescent relationship abuse, or even intimate partner violence. That's more commonly used for adults, but I tend to use the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention definitions. So the CDC defines physical dating violence as the intentional use of physical force with the potential for causing death, disability, injury, or harm. And that can include coercing somebody to commit physical violence as well. And then they define sexual violence as a sexual act that's committed or attempted by another person without consent, without the freely given consent of the victim or against someone who is unable to consent or refuse that sexual activity. So for example, someone who is under the influence of substances like drunk or high, and that includes sexual coercion as well. But the most common type of adolescent dating violence is actually psychological aggression. So the CDC defines that as the use of verbal and nonverbal communication with the intent to either harm another person mentally or emotionally, 
or exert control over the other person. So either trying to directly harm them or control them in some manner. So those are the types of dating violence that we most commonly study and we've conceptualized it as a continuum, right? So it's not the dating violence Olympics, like one person's psychological aggression could be worse than another person's physical dating violence experience as the victim. But in general, we conceptualize it as a continuum from like verbal and emotional aggression all the way to physical and sexual violence. But any one instance for any one individual could vary in terms of its intensity and its impact on the person. You know, in another real life scenario, we have a 16-year-old girl patient that reports that her boyfriend had sexual intercourse with her when she was passed out after drinking, you know, hence your alcohol is a more mm -hmm. commonly used substance. You know, what is this particular behavior called and what all does it entail? That's a great question. So technically that would be considered sexual violence because she wasn't able to consent to the sexual activity in that situation. She wasn't able to refuse if she had wanted to. So a lot of girls and women might say, well, that's my boyfriend, right? We have that relationship. So is it really rape? Is it really sexual violence or sexual coercion? And using those terms can sometimes be confusing. So in clinical work um, and also research supports the fact that it's important to be led by how the patients themselves are defining it, how they're describing what happened, and that they may not use terms like sexual violence or rape, but that doesn't minimize the impact of what happened on them. So as providers, we can help them understand that no matter what we call it, this behavior is not okay. It's never okay to have sex with somebody or engage in any unwanted sexual contact or physical contact with somebody who can't consent because they're drunk or any other reason. You know, it is important to note that sexual violence is not the same as sexual risk behavior. Can you make that distinction for us, please? And, and why does it seem some of these issues are perpetuated, particularly for members of underrepresented minority groups? Sure. So for the first part of the question, often people confuse sexual violence and sexual risk just because they're similar terms. But sexual violence really refers to that unwanted sexual contact, like per the CDC definition. Um, and that, that can include unwanted sexual touching, rape. It's really something that someone is doing to you. Sexual risk behaviors are just really anything that could lead to negative health consequences or behavioral, emotional, mental health consequences. So I don't love to use the term sexual risk behaviors. It's really commonly used in the literature, but I really like to take more of like a strengths and resilience-based perspective um, when working with adolescents, both individually and then at sort of a, the group level for research. But that being said, Sexual risk behaviors can include not using condoms or not using them consistently, not using any other form of contraception. It could be having multiple sexual partners, could be using substances in the context of sexual activity. It's really anything that could increase your risk of unwanted health consequences. So sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, unintended pregnancy, it's sort of any behavior that could increase your risk of health consequences. So it really depends on the context as well. So historically, some researchers would measure any kind of sexual behavior as a sexual risk behavior. But an adolescent who is in a monogamous relationship, 
and they're consistently using contraception and condoms, like that's not necessarily risky in and of itself. If that were an adult, if they were married, like people wouldn't generally consider that sexual risk behavior. So I think it's really important to have like a healthy developmental perspective on sexual behavior in adolescence as well. We know that sex is normative and sexual behavior is pretty normal in adolescence, particularly for older adolescents. So I try to be careful not to like pathologize any kind of sexual behavior in adolescence. It's not necessarily bad. It's more about, okay, let's weigh the pros and cons here. Like what are the risks of the behavior that you're engaging in and take a harm reduction approach. So how can we help you make decisions that are going to protect your health or in the case of young moms that I work with, your health and the health of your children? You know, so another real life scenario here because I'm actively in gynecologic practice, there is a 17-year-old patient that asks me, her OBGYN, to cut her intrauterine device threads, that is her IUD threads, to cut it short so that her boyfriend cannot feel them because he doesn't allow her to use contraception, some form of birth control. Mm -hmm. What is this boyfriend's behavior an example of? So that would be an example of what we call reproductive coercion. So it's actually a form of psychological aggression where you're basically trying to control the reproductive power or someone's ability to choose when and how they have children in a relationship. And that's something that we do see in adolescents for sure. And it can be particularly common when adolescents have older partners. Um, this is something that we hear a lot from young mothers, for example, they might say, well, I have a baby with my previous partner and now I have a new partner and I feel like I should give him a baby as well. And he wants me to have a baby by him so that, you know, we have that connection that I have with my ex. So there's all different kinds of reproductive coercion. This is a super interesting example that you provide, because first of all, a lot of kudos to this adolescent for having an IUD, because as you know, better than I do, that's like not the most common form of birth control in adolescence. And a lot of adolescents don't even know about IUDs. So that's awesome. That that's the method that she's using. However, a lot of folks of all ages do worry that their partner might feel the threads of the IUD during intercourse. So I can understand this young woman's concern. It would be great if she told you that before you inserted the IUD so you could talk about other forms of long-acting reversible contraception, perhaps. But you know, I would encourage using condoms because obviously that prevents STIs as well as pregnancy. Um, and maybe that would reduce the risk of them feeling it as well. Um, but I think that that patient expressing that concern would really be a doorway into a conversation about what her relationship is like with her partner and how she feels about that and providing her with resources. I know there's only so much you can do in the context of an OBGYN visit, especially when the focus is on that clinical care. But I think talking about, you know, like that might be something to think about. Is this a healthy relationship for you? And what are you worried might happen if your boyfriend finds out you're using contraception? And why doesn't he want you to use contraception? And just using those open-ended questions and taking that open-minded approach to try to understand what's going on in the patient's life and kind of plant those seeds in her mind for thinking, huh, I wonder if this is a healthy situation for me and connecting her with resources um, that she can use to further explore that. So for our listeners out there, we're talking to Dr. Meredith Jones. She's a clinical psychologist 
and she has written this fabulous paper about dating violence. And we're talking about the contents of the paper. And also uh, for our listeners out there, an IUD, especially for the young ones, is called an intrauterine device. It's a form of long-acting reversible contraception. So if you don't want to have a baby for a long time, anywhere from five, six, 10 years, we put in this intrauterine device. But one of the side effects of cutting the strings short from an OBGYN point of view is at the end of these five, six, seven, 10 years, depending on the IUD you use, and when it's time to take it out, at times it's difficult for the obstetric provider to find the string to be able to retrieve the IUD. So you might want to also share that with your boyfriend out there. So Dr. Jones, thank you so much. Now, going back to our next topic, young people usually use the word stalking very freely, but in your world, what does it mean to be stalked? How do you know as a person, as a teenager, as a woman that you are being stalked and what should you do? Great question. So by definition, stalking is a really a pattern of behavior that's unwanted, repeated, and contact with somebody who is making you feel afraid, either for your own safety or for the safety of somebody else, like your friends, your family, your children. So it includes this pattern of behavior and also that fear. So it's a really broad definition. So any behavior from a partner that you that makes you just feel in your gut that this is not okay and I feel scared. I'm wondering what they might do next. Why are they checking up on me? That's something that could give that you really should give you pause and you should think about is this really healthy? Because all relationships for any anybody of any age should have that balance of intimacy and autonomy, right? So that means that you want to have a lot of closeness with your partner and spend time with them and share your feelings and thoughts with them and share activities with them. But it's also healthy to have alone time, do your own thing with your friends and family and have some time apart. Um, and if that's not something that you feel like is in balance in your relationship, and particularly if your partner is constantly saying, where are you? What are you doing? Like looking up your location on social media apps, like on Snapchat, you can see on the Snap map where somebody is like all the time if they have that feature turned on. And if your partner is showing up places where you are unexpectedly or asking who you're with all the time, things like that, um, then that's that's a bit of a red flag in terms of stalking behavior. So it doesn't really matter if you use that term or not. Some people like think that's kind of a scary term that you might see on like CSI or like 48 hours mysteries, right? And so they'd say, oh, my partner would never do that. But just think about like, is this you know, relationship healthy in terms of the amount of time that we spend together and spend apart? And are we comfortable with the other person spending time apart from us in this relationship? So once you know that you, or you feel that you are being stalked, you know, what should you do? You know, as, especially as a, I mean, you really love this person, you enjoy being with them, but you don't like this aspect of the relationship. What should mm -hmm. you do? So I would say that if there's any safety concern, particularly if you're under 18, talk to a trusted adult about it. That, that could be anybody in your life, like a friend or family member, like an, an auntie or a cousin or you know one of your health providers or a religious or spiritual leader or somebody at your school, like the school counselor. And they can give you some perspective on you know whether that's you know something that's healthy in a relationship and give you some resources. But if you if you don't feel like you're 
imminently in any kind of danger, I would say try having a conversation with your partner first and let them know that the behavior makes you feel uncomfortable. So a lot of us have different definitions of what is healthy in a relationship and how much contact we want to have with partners. Always remember, I was leading a group on healthy relationships at a school once, and I asked like the 10th graders, so what do you think is like a good amount of times to text your partner every day or like DM them or message them? How often would you want to be messaging your partner that you're dating during the day? And their answers ranged from once, you know, just check in, say, hey, say goodnight to somebody else said like, oh, my girlfriend and I, we text each other at least 500 times a day, right? So everybody has their own definition. So that's important to set that boundary and that expectation with your partner from the beginning of your relationship, if possible. Um, But especially if it comes up as an issue and say, hey, you know, I really care about you and I am like super into this relationship, but it's making me feel a little bit uncomfortable when you show up somewhere just because you saw it on my snap map and I didn't tell you I was there, right? Um, And try to have that conversation if you feel, again, that you're not in any kind of imminent danger. If you're in any kind of imminent danger, definitely reach out and get support. I always hesitate to say call the police, but that obviously is another resource that you can pursue as well. 